Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis at the corner of the Nicollet Mall and 12th Street. I am Donald Meisel. An exciting part of my ministry here at Westminster has been the moderating of these Thursday noon town hall forums, 50 some to date, six or seven a year, each devoted to hosting a noted voice of conscience addressing an issue of note. The pleasure of hosting a person like today's speaker, Rabbi Kushner, is matched by the privilege of welcoming you, you who come in person, all are welcome without charge, you who listen over public radio, and you who listen and watch on television. Yes, today's speaker is Rabbi Harold S. Kushner. He is rabbi of Temple Israel of Natick, Massachusetts, where he's been since 1966. He is perhaps best known for his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, a book which deals insightfully and knowingly and caringly with the problem of human pain, the problem of suffering on the part of the innocent an issue that surfaced in his own life with particular force and poignancy with the death by rapid aging of his 14-year-old son, Aaron. Other works by Rabbi Kushner include What's Happening to the Jewish Family? When Children Ask About God? What's Supposed to Happen When We Pray? What to Do with the Rest of Your Life? His most recent book that's gaining wide attention is when all you've ever wanted isn't enough, the search for a life that matters. Rabbi Kushner has been a participant these past several days in the National Workshop on Christian-Jewish Relations held here in Minneapolis this year and hosted in part by Westminster Church. Rabbi Kushner's theme for us here today is the challenge of being human. Let us welcome him. Thank you and thank all of you for coming. Let me begin by expressing my congratulations to the residents of the Twin Cities and to the state of Minnesota on the success of your baseball team, the world champion Minnesota Twins. I'm from Boston. One year ago, we were within inches of being the world champions and then we blew it. And for weeks afterwards, you have to realize, I don't know if I could say this in the hallowed portals of Westminster Presbyterian, we have a strong Calvinist tradition in Boston, a Puritan sense which reminds us that we are not supposed to enjoy the good things of this life. <laughs> for weeks afterwards, we heard all sorts of sermons about how it was better for our spiritual health that we lost the World Series. <laughs> all I can say is, as someone who has written one book on the problems of coping with misfortune, 
and another book about what to do with success, I would much rather be in your situation than ours. <laughs> Let me tell you a story. It's a true story that happened about 140, 150 years ago in the Jewish community of Eastern Europe in Russia at the time of the Tsar. The early 19th century was a particularly difficult time for the Jews of Tsarist Russia. They were not only subject to the persecutions of the Tsar and his minions, to the pogroms of the anti-Semites in Russia, they were also bitterly divided themselves between the Hasidim, the ecstatic, charismatic Jews, and their religious theological opponents, the straight, conventional Jews. Things became so bitter between these two Jewish camps that they not only excommunicated each other, they not only refused to pray with each other, some people were so fanatical in their hatred for their religious opponents, they went to the czarist authorities, to the police, and told lies about the other camp. And so what happened that the Hasidic master, whom we call the Alter Rebbe, the old rabbi, the founder of the Lubavitch school of Hasidism, found himself imprisoned on false charges. And it took him several months in one of the Tsar's jails before he could prove his innocence. One day while he was there, the prison master came to him and said, I understand you're a rabbi and a learned man. May I ask you a question? Of course, ask anything you want. Jailkeeper says, I'm not a believer. I'm not religious, but I have a lot of friends who are, and they're always telling me to read the Bible. It's a very wise book. It'll be a guide to my life. So the other day, I sat down to read it, and I must tell you I'm not impressed. I mean, right here, on the third page of the Bible, it describes God asking Adam, where are you? Now, really, what kind of question is that? <laughs> One man in the whole world, and God can't find him? <laughs> the rabbi smiles and says, no, you misunderstood the story. God doesn't ask Adam, where are you, because he needs to know where Adam is. God knows where Adam is. It's because Adam needs to ask himself, where am I? And he said to the jailkeeper, for example, you're 45 years old. Where are you? And when the jailkeeper heard the rabbi identify precisely how old he was, he was taken aback. And he had to go back and reopen some questions that he thought had been satisfactorily closed in his mind. The first time I ever read that story, I was a rabbinical student, graduate student in my early 20s, and I remember very precisely how I responded to it. I said to myself, that's a nice story. I like that story. I want to remember it and use it in a sermon. It's too bad they had to spoil it at the end by making it a mind-reading trick. Why didn't they leave well enough alone? Why does the rabbi have to guess how old the jailkeeper is? Then a few years ago, I happened to run across that story again. And now I was in my mid-40s, and all of a sudden I understood it for the first time. It's not a mind-reading trick. It's not that hard to guess how old a person is. The point is, you get to a point in your life where you find that the questions you're asking about life have changed. And instead of asking, how much can I achieve? How high can I rise? You start to ask, where am I? And what does it all add up to? I am convinced that human beings are not afraid of death. We can handle the idea of mortality, the idea that we're not going to live forever. You know what we're afraid of? We are afraid of nullification. We are afraid of insignificance. We're not afraid of dying. We are afraid of never having lived. 
of suddenly finding ourselves at the end of our lives and realizing that it's not going to matter to anybody in the world whether there was such a person as me or not. And that's what we can't handle. This is what I want to talk about with you today. How shall we live so that we feel we have used our time as human beings were meant to? One thing that American society does that makes it hard for us to feel good about our lives is that we define success as winning. Success means coming in first, and there is no other definition of success. Had the seventh game ended the other way, with the Cardinals winning, nobody would be talking about the Twins except the way we talked about the Red Sox a year ago, with disdain and frustration. Outdoing all expectations and being the second best baseball team in the world doesn't make it in the United States. If you don't win, you're a loser. You have an example here in Minnesota. Walter Mondale retires to anonymity because only 52 million Americans thought he was qualified to be president. <laughs> but he came in second, and we don't pay off for finishing second. When you finish second, you are a loser. When we define success as winning, and we can't understand any other kind of success, we do two things, and they are both bad. First, we brand 95% of the people in society as losers because they didn't win. A woman in her early 40s came to see me in my study in my synagogue some years ago, looked up at me and said, Rabbi, I don't know why I'm still alive. What's the point to my life? What do I have to look forward to? She said, I hate my job. It's a stupid job. I go to work every day, and I never do anything I feel good about. I'm not happy the way the children are growing up. My marriage has gotten kind of dull and boring and predictable. I have this terrible feeling that all the nice things that will ever happen in my life have already happened. And what do I have to look forward to? She said to me, I have two children. If I approve of the people they decide to marry, I will enjoy going to their weddings. Great. Two nice days in the next 30 years. <laughs> And if I don't like the people they marry, I don't even have that. <laughs> what is there in the rest of my life for me to look forward to? And I have to try and convince this woman that just because she didn't drive a fancy new car and live in a nice house and wear clothes that other women envied her for, she didn't have to feel that her life was a failure. I said to her that for 25 years she has been a loyal and loving wife, a devoted mother, not happy about the kids. First of all, you don't get all the responsibility. They had a little bit to do with it. And they can surprise you. You never know how they're going to end up. And more than that, you are at a point in your life where you are freed from certain other commitments and obligations that you had until now. You can become a force in this community for the rest of your life. And you can feel very good about the kind of things you do. But you see, she had not won. She was not number one. And she felt about herself that she was a loser. That's the first bad thing we do. The second thing is, even the people who win look around and say, is this all there is to winning? I thought it would feel better than this. This is what I neglected my family for. This is what I pushed people out of the way for. This is the one thing I concentrated on for all these years. Why doesn't it feel better? And the reason it doesn't feel better is that if you are real good about finishing ahead of other people, you don't feel happy, you feel lonely.
You are so far ahead of everybody else, you have nobody to share your success with. There is a line in a poem by Kipling, down to Gehenna or up to the throne, he travels the fastest who travels alone. That is, you want to get to the top, you'll get there more easily if you're not tied down with a husband or wife, with kids, with friends, even with moral scruples. And I think Kipling is trying to warn us, do you really want to get to the top that badly that you have to get there alone? If I were to summarize this talk in one sentence, well, one sentence with a semicolon, I think it would be this. <laughs> the purpose of life is not to win. The purpose of life is to grow and share. Because when you define life as winning, you see other people as competitors. Everybody else in your world is either a potential customer or a potential rival. You know what happens in the United States? Terrible epidemic in this country. Men don't have friends. Men don't have friends. We have buddies that we'll go fishing with, watch a football game with, maybe sit down and talk a business deal over lunch. We don't know how to share ourselves with other men. The way a woman will make a date to meet with a woman friend just to catch up with each other's lives. We have been taught to see every other man as a potential rival. Don't ever let them see you sweat. So we can't open up, we can't share our fears, we can't talk about how we feel about getting older, about the body slowing down, about our marriages, about our children, about what scares us at work. Because we can't open up and share things with them. We have to defeat them and outdo them and win ahead of them. How should a person live that you can feel like a real human being, that you know you have fulfilled yourself as you were meant to? give you a couple of suggestions. First, the only kind of life you will feel good about is the life that you share with others. The life you hoard for yourself will always grow stale and unsatisfying. And the life you share is the life that feels fulfilling. For much of the 20th century, we have glorified the individual. We have seen success and fulfillment in individual terms. We have canonized the therapist for teaching people to find their own success, to work out their own path. We have defined, redefined the family, not as a unit, but as a collection of units all living at the same address. And then we wonder why people are so lonely. We wonder why people go to shopping centers not to shop, but simply to be in the company of other people. We wonder why people go home at night and turn on the television set, not because they want to hear the program, they don't even know what the program is. They need to hear another human voice in their lives because in our celebration of the individual, we have taught people to be lonely and they wonder what's missing from their lives because they have learned that lesson so well. If you would feel good about your life, share your life with others. Our Connections to other people do not tie us down and restrict us. They liberate us. In my suburban congregation in Boston, it will happen eight or ten times a year that I'll learn that a marriage has broken up. Husband and wife are separating. Typically, it's a 38, 40-year-old man tired of mortgage payments, tired of orthodontia payments, tired of seeing the same faces at the breakfast table, leaves his family, trades in the station wagon for a two-seater sports car, and starts life over again. And I will say to him, what do you think you're doing? 
And he'll say to me, it was hard, but I had to do it. This was my last chance to be happy. And I'll say, okay, where did you get the idea that the way to be happy is to cut yourself off from other people, to have no responsibilities? It seems to me the happiest times in my life were the times when I knew that there were people who needed me and depended on me. And the worst thing I could ever imagine feeling is to wake up one day and realize nobody cared if I was still there or not. The life you feel good about is the life you share with other people. How shall we live to feel fulfilled? The psychoanalyst Jung tells us that when we get to about the halfway point in our lives, we should stop doing the things we already know how to do well and start learning the things we never learned how to do. His phrase is, go back and fill in all the spaces you left blank when you were growing up. Society, for reasons of its own, teaches us to specialize, to be very good at a few things, and totally unskilled at so many others. And we become very one-sided, distorted, incomplete people when we do that. Jung says that men have to learn how to let their feminine sides emerge, the side they repressed while they were learning to be masculine. They have to learn how to nurture and connect instead of competing. And women have to learn how to let their masculine, competitive, assertive sides emerge. If you have spent the first half of your life graduating from being somebody's daughter to being somebody's wife to being somebody's mother, and never in all those decades was there a time where you were somebody in your own right, you have to learn how to assert yourself. I remember several years ago, my wife and I saw two movies in the same week and they provided a fascinating contrast with each other. The first, you may remember that British Olympic movie, Chariots of Fire, a movie about two men trying to make the Olympic team, each one trying to be the fastest runner in all of Britain. They never exchange very much, they never grow close, they never talk about their feelings. All they ever say to each other is, this, my name is so-and-so, good luck, may the best man win. And yet, because they have competed at a world-class level, they feel a bond between them. The cliche is we teach men to be comfortable with competition, uncomfortable with intimacy, and women just the other way around. A week after we saw Chariots of Fire, we saw a movie with Marielle Hemingway called Personal Best. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It was also an Olympic movie. This time it's women trying to make the team in the women's pentathlon. At the end of the Marielle Hemingway movie, she deliberately loses a race. It's the Olympic trials, she's already made the team, but if she wins the race, her best friend won't have enough points to be on the team, and that was her lifelong ambition. So she deliberately slows down and, and loses. I suspect a lot of men walked out of that movie saying, isn't that stupid? What's the point of being an Olympic athlete if you're afraid to win because you hurt somebody's feelings? Stay home and play checkers. <laughs> and I suspect a lot of women walked out of that movie saying, isn't that touching? What's the point of winning a stupid race and hurting somebody you love in the process? So this year you win, and next time somebody else wins and you're an answer in trivial pursuit, and nobody remembers what happened. In the meantime, you have hurt somebody's life. I think we each need to absorb the wisdom of the other half of humanity. We have to understand the legitimacy of competition and the legitimacy of nurturing and caring of not putting the emphasis on winning and losing that America has trained its men to do. How shall we live that we feel good about our lives? 
Perhaps the most important ingredient of all is to know that we have made a difference, that the world will be different for our having passed through it. And the good news here is you don't have to do something great to do that. You don't have to win the Nobel Prize. You don't have to find the cure for cancer. You don't have to write the great American novel. Little deeds of caring and thoughtfulness will change the world. And sometimes I tell this story to make that point. You remember in scripture, when God leads the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, he determines to work a miracle for them so spectacular that anyone who watches it will never doubt his power or providence again. And what does he do? He splits the Red Sea, leads the Israelites across on dry land, brings the waters back to engulf the Egyptian pursuer. Works, spectacular miracle. Everybody who sees it says, wow, the Lord will be my God forever. You read on in chapter 16 of Exodus, and you find that three days later, they're complaining about the water, they're complaining about the food, they're complaining about the itinerary, the accommodations, they don't like anything. What we learn from that passage is that forever is a technical term meaning 48 hours. Somebody tells you he'll be grateful to you forever. Somebody promises to love you forever. You can hold him to it for 48 hours. After that, it's a lost cause. God sees that, realizes you cannot nourish people tomorrow on the basis of yesterday's miracle. So he changes his tactic. And instead of one spectacular miracle once in a generation, do you remember what he does? He gives Israel the manna. Food grows outside their front door overnight. And all you have to do is reach out like bringing in the morning paper, gather up enough food to feed your family for the day. Not as impressive, not nearly as spectacular as splitting the Red Sea, but because it happens every day, it works. And it changes the way the Israelites see the world. There is a moral there for all of us. You want to feel good about your life, Little deeds of caring will do it. Here is a very specific suggestion. Block out three times a week to do something generous and unselfish for somebody else. It can be a favor for a friend or neighbor. It could be volunteering for some sort of community organization, staffing a hotline, working for some cause, whatever it is you believe in. Three times a week. Yes, I know, you're very busy people. Your schedules are very crowded. Look, you have, find time for your favorite TV program. You find time to read the paper every day. You find time to get to the gym and work out. All I'm asking for is three times a week to do something unselfish. You will be astonished how quickly you feel differently about your life. I'll tell you what I believe as profoundly as I believe anything else. This is the theological cornerstone of my whole life. I believe in the same way that our bodies are made so that certain kinds of food and certain kinds of lifestyle are healthy for us and other kinds are unhealthy. And you can eat the wrong things and not get enough exercise for a couple of years, you get away with it, but it's going to catch up with you. In precisely the same way, I believe our souls are made so that certain kinds of behavior are healthy for us and other kinds are toxic. A life of generosity, of honesty, of cheerfulness makes you feel better. A life of deception and exploitation and selfishness literally
poisons the soul. I've had people who read my first book suggest to me I ought to write another book and call it When Good Things Happen to Bad People because that's what really bothers them. <laughs> they have said to me, I can understand that no sensitive, compassionate person can get through this life without being hurt by the things that go on. I can believe that God cannot weave a magic circle around us and make misfortune only happen to other people and never to us. That's okay. What I can't understand is this. If there is so much misery and anguish in the world, couldn't God deflect a little bit of it onto my neighbor who deserves it? <laughs> if the question is, why do mean, selfish people get away with murder? My answer is they don't. My answer is you pay for everything you take in this world in one currency or another. The punishment of the selfish, exploitative person may simply be he will never know the satisfactions of really being human. And you say to me, but wait a minute. He doesn't know what he's missing. What kind of punishment is that? That's no answer. The blind person doesn't know what he's not seeing. But those of us who have seen the leaves turn color in the autumn and the flowers come up in the spring and the sun set in the evening, how can we feel anything but compassion for a person who will never see that? The selfish, mean, dishonest person doesn't know what he's missing either. But you and I who have known the satisfactions of love and honesty and generosity, how can we feel anything but pity for the person who will live in a fancy house and eat at good restaurants and never know what it's like to love and be loved. It's not worth the trade. Let me tell you one more story and draw a moral from it, and with that I'll conclude. It's the story of the factory that was having a problem with employee theft. People were stealing company property. It was getting to be a real problem. They had to do something about it. So they hired a security firm to stand at all the exits and search people when they left. You had to open your lunchbox, let them go through your pockets, make sure you weren't walking off with anything that belonged to the company. Everybody went along with this cooperatively enough, except for one person who insisted on giving them a hard time. Every day at 5 o'clock, he would go through the checkpoint with a wheelbarrow full of garbage, and the poor security guard had to spend a half hour going through all this trash, the wrappers, the apple cores, the styrofoam cups, the cigarette butts, miserable, dirty, messy stuff. He hated it. He did it twice, three times. By the fourth afternoon, he said to the guy, listen, I can't take this anymore. I know you're trying to pull something. I can't figure out what. I have gone through all of this trash every day. I never find anything valuable you're smuggling out. Tell me what you're doing, and I promise not to turn you in. And the guy said, it's easy. I'm stealing wheelbarrows. <laughs> I think a lot of us make that mistake. We look back over our lives. We search desperately through all the months and all the years of our lives looking for something valuable, looking for something that we can say, this made my life worthwhile. And when we don't find it, like the security guard in the story, we panic. When we don't find it, we say to ourselves, but I was so busy for so many years. I was always doing, I was always rushing. 
What was it all about? What did it add up to? Because we don't know where to look. We don't know where to find the things that really redeem a life from meaninglessness and make it worthwhile and valuable. If we could understand what it really means to be alive and human, if we could comprehend that the value in a life is not simply that it is lived, but that it is shared, if we could take to heart that incisive recommendation of the Jewish sages in the Talmud, a person ought to do three things in his life, plant a tree, have a child, and write a book, so that we invest our creativity in something which will survive us and keep us around. If we will realize that you don't have to be afraid of life, that you can sanctify life, that you can change the world in modest little deeds of thoughtfulness if you do it every day, then when we look back over what we filled our months and our years with, we won't panic. We won't feel desperate looking for something of value that is hidden there. When you have learned what it really means to be alive, life itself will have been the reward. Thank you. Someone handed to me just before the program this copy of The New Republic, and the lead title on top of it is When Bad Things Happen to Rich People. <laughs> Perhaps you'd like to comment on uh, the recent crash and what it means in these terms. 
Boy, I'll tell you, if there is one subject I am not an expert on, it's the stock market. I think what it represents ties in with what I've been saying this afternoon. That is, the, the burden of the article is that there is a certain wicked, delicious satisfaction we get in seeing all these yuppie investment brokers get their comeuppance. <laughs> What's happened is that we made greed an end in itself. We measured success not in what a person did, but in how much he got paid for it. And of course, that is a castle built on sand that could not stand. Uh, aside from, and it's very easy to look back and with hindsight point out that the market was overinflated, and I, I confess I really don't understand any of that business, what happened was this fascination that you define the worthwhileness of what you do not in terms of the benefit to society, but simply in your ability to come away from it with a lot of money, has to be slightly obscene. The kind of profits that were made, I think, have to trouble us. The idea that there is something automatic about getting rich, that if you are a graduate of one of America's better business schools, all you have to do is take the money, put it under a magic rock, go out for dinner at a trendy restaurant, and when you come back, it will have gone up 15%. The world can't possibly work that way. And I, I think what we're seeing is a, uh, is a settling in for other values. I would hope that the real lesson is not simply, don't put your trust in markets because one day they will collapse. I would hope the real message is, don't put your trust in markets because that's not where satisfaction lies that even the people who are very successful and drive their Mercedes and their BMWs ultimately will find that there is something shallow about this. If there is an emptiness at a person's core, no amount of shiny, expensive gadgets will fill that emptiness. If there is a sense that you are not sharing life with other people, no amount of external gloss will make up for that sense of hollowness inside. Question from the audience. Can we translate your maxims of non-competitiveness to a national level, or is this a personal value only? I mean that the United States should not be a competitive nation. Um, I think it's a lot easier at the national level. Uh, I think best, one of the best things that could happen to the United States was to would be to outgrow this sports metaphor, a feeling that we have to show we are major league and we have to win and all of that. Ultimately, I think it comes with maturity. One of the things I've learned is that young people have to be competitive. They really need to be, otherwise nothing would get done in the world. Two stories. There is an old Jewish legend told in the Talmud about the day they trapped the spirit of selfishness in a tree and wouldn't let him down. And they said, wow, from now on, our world will be paradise. Nobody will do anything selfish. We have the spirit of selfishness trapped in a tree. We're going to live in an ideal world. The next morning, nobody opened his place of business. Nobody bought. Nobody sold. Nobody went courting. Nobody got married. Because these are all things that have an element of selfishness in them. And so reluctantly, they had to let the spirit of selfishness out of the tree and learn to live in a world where people are motivated by trying to get ahead. Second story, this is apparently a true story I heard when I was in California a year and a half ago. 20-year-old young man 
sophomore at Stanford University, pre-med. As a gift between his sophomore and junior years at college, his parents give him a fully paid up trip to the Far East. He works so hard in school, let him go out and have a good time. In Japan, this young college student falls under the spell of a guru who says to him, don't you see you're poisoning your soul with this competition? Your idea of happiness is for your team to win and the other team to lose. Can't you come up with a definition of happiness that doesn't require somebody else's losing? Your idea of success is to get into graduate school ahead of your best friend. Your idea of a good marriage is not to find the woman who will make you complete, but to win the girl that everybody else wants to marry, but you get her instead. That's not how people are supposed to live. Give it up and come live with us where we all share and we all love and we're all equal. Now, picture for yourself, this young man has just been through four years of a very competitive high school to get into Stanford. He's been through two years of pre-med at Stanford. He is ripe for this kind of talk, calls his parents from Japan and says, I'm dropping out of college. I'm going to go live in an ashram. Six months later, they get a letter from him saying, Dear Mom and Dad, I know you weren't happy about the decision I made last summer. I must tell you how happy it's made me. For the first time in my life, I am at peace. No striving, no competing, no trying to get ahead. Here we all share, we're all equal. This new way of life is so much in harmony with the inner essence of my being that in only six months I've become the number two disciple in the whole ashram. <laughs> And I think I could be number one by June. <laughs> Moral of the story, young people will always be competitive. The question is, will they at some point achieve the maturity to be a little bit embarrassed by what was important to them in their 20s? When I was in my 20s and early 30s, it was very important for me to be the best darn rabbi in America. And I neglected my family, and I did a lot of dumb things because it was so important for me to be the best. And I look back now, and I am embarrassed by what my priorities were then. No, I think there will be times when young people are very competitive, and more mature people will have to realize that this is something which is best left to the young. And when the American collective national spirit matures, where we reserve our shouting and our waving of penance and saying we're number one for the Metrodome and occasions like that, I think America will have contributed something very valuable to the world scene. This is a question from the radio audience. Do you believe a person can achieve financial success and still have a loving family relationship? Uh, I would like to think I'm an exemplar of that. <laughs> yes, I think so. I think it is. It is very possible to be financially successful and still give full value to your wife and children. What is much, much harder is to believe that there is nothing as important as financial success and still give full value to your wife and children. I, uh, uh, I was telling Reverend Mosel the story before we came out in the public of a convention I was at last July, an assembly of very successful insurance agents called the Million Dollar Roundtable. I don't know if there's anybody here who is involved in that. You have to sell a whole lot of insurance mm -hmm. even to be eligible to be invited to this convention. I was on a program with Jim Valvano, the basketball coach at North Carolina State, very successful uh, basketball coach, goes around during the off-season giving these motivational talks. 
you know, aim for the top, aim high, you can be number one, don't let anything stop you. And he's wonderful, he's inspiring, he's funny, and he goes over very well. And when he's done, I come on. <laughs> and I say, you know, there are more important things in life than winning. <laughs> I quoted the line from Lily Tomlin that the trouble with a rat race is even if you win, you're still a rat. I said to those people in Chicago, I said, I want to be the guy who asks you what it costs you to come to this convention. Not the airfare and not how much the hotel is charging. What did it cost you? What were the things that got squeezed out of your life because it was so important for you to sell all that insurance? What were the things you did not have time for because you had to reach the top in your profession? I'm not saying it's bad to be successful, and I'm not saying it's bad to sell a lot of insurance, or to be a wonderful doctor, or to be a very fine politician, or an effective clergyman. What I'm saying is, please understand the trade-off. You see, when we're young, we think time stretches before us forever. And you can get around to doing everything. What you don't do now, you'll do later. And somehow you can squeeze everything in. My thumbnail definition of middle age has nothing to do with how many birthdays you've passed. It's your attitude toward time. It can happen the first time you go to the funeral of somebody your own age. It can happen when your parents die and all of a sudden you move up one generation. It can happen the first time you are seriously ill and all of a sudden you are forced to confront the prospect of your own mortality. And then you start to say to yourself, hey, I'm not going to be here forever and I can't do everything and if I can't do everything, what are the things I must get done? And at that point, you set out priorities. Now, if you are very lucky or very good, and you can become financially successful without shortchanging yourself and your family spiritually, great, go ahead and do it. There is nothing wrong with being well off. If you have to choose, ask yourself what your real values are. And if you're not sure, I would give you a little bit of a hint. I would quote the words that my former senator from Massachusetts, Paul Songus, quoted when he left the Senate at age 43 to spend more time with his family. He said, nobody on his deathbed ever said, I wish I'd spent more time on my business. I don't know why it has just occurred to me that I have no living predecessors in this job. <laughs> what happens, Rabbi, when as a man your family looks upon you only as a paycheck to keep up with the Joneses, to pay for the latest fads for the kids? Do you not wish to leave this situation and find true happiness even with a sports car? Sounds to me like somebody is asking for permission to do something he wants to do. Uh, you want to do it, do it, but don't do it with my permission. No, it seems to me that what you want to do in a situation like that is get some outside help to straighten things out. Uh, my theory is that in any situation of family conflict, there are no heroes and no villains. Nobody wears a white hat, nobody wears a black hat. Everybody in the family setting has conspired to create this state of affairs. Publicly or privately, consciously or subconsciously, everybody has conspired. 
If you're not happy with it, I guarantee that the other people in the family aren't happy. Every case of marital conflict I have dealt with as a pastor, where the husband resented the role he played, the wife resented the way the, the responsibilities had been divided as well. No, to the anonymous gentleman who asked that question, I would say, before you take the very drastic and inevitably painful step of leaving a situation you have apparently invested years in, I run into this so often, the American mentality is it's cheaper to replace it than to fix it. It's true of toasters, it's true of automobiles, it's true of television sets, and we're starting to believe it's true of re relationships. And so instead of trying to put in the painful effort that is required to straighten something out, we think we will start from scratch. Trouble is what is true of toasters is not true of relationships. You can't start from scratch. Even if you leave and start over, you carry with you the scars and the memories of the previous relationship. You don't start from scratch, you start with a tremendous emotional residue of the first relationship. It is always so much cheaper and less painful to fix what you've got up until the point where you have to say it is simply not fixable than to discard it and replace it. To the gentleman who asked that question, I would urge you to go to some sort of counseling, somebody who deals with family systems, and help you figure out how to rearrange your priorities so you feel better about where you are now, rather than start over again and five, ten years down the road discover that you're making them the same mistakes again. Thank you. Another question from the radio audience. What is your feeling about the response to tragedy, namely, something good will come from this? You know, I've written a book on the subject. Right, right. The problem is we really mean to help. We really want to make people feel better. But the subject of suffering, death, misfortune makes us immensely anxious. And when we are anxious, we don't always say the right thing. The wrong thing to do when you're trying to comfort a friend is to say between the lines, shut up and stop crying, you've got nothing to complain about. Now, we would never say it in those words, would we? God forbid we would ever say that. But the implication is the same. When we say to somebody, in the long run, there'll be a good reason for it, you'll be better off for it. When we say to somebody, but he's no longer suffering. When we say to the bereaved parent, you have other children. When we say to someone else, I know somebody who has it much worse, what I once referred to as the suffering Olympics. <laughs> when we say, if you're a religious person, you can't question God, you simply bow your head and accept his will. Those are all ways of saying, what you feel bad about is not really bad. What I'm afraid we're doing is we're choosing to defend and justify God rather than to comfort the afflicted. And I'd like to believe if we could ask God for his preference, I'd like to think God would say, forget about me and my reputation. I can really take care of myself. You bind the wounds of my bleeding children on earth. But you see, the problem, remember the story of Job in the Bible? Job is this man who has everything going for him, and then one day it's all taken away, wealth destroyed, children killed in an accident, he gets sick. Three friends come to try and bring him consolation, and for seven days, the Bible tells us, they sat on the ground with him and they kept their mouths shut and didn't say a word. 
And then Job erupted in pain and anger and anguish. And Job says, why is God doing this to me? And they thought they were supposed to answer him. So they tried to explain to him why God is doing this to him. They just argue and, and call each other names for 38 chapters. <laughs> the key discovery is, why is this happening to me? Why my child, why my family? is not a question, it is a cry of pain. You respond to the person who says, why me, why my mother? Not by answering her question, but by easing her pain. You help the person not by explaining that they'll be better off for it, because that just robs them of the right to feel hurt. You help the person by hugging them and holding their hand and sitting still while they pour their grief out. That's the most helpful thing we can do. Look, your best friend says to you, what did I ever do to deserve this? Does she want you to tell her all the things she did to deserve this? <laughs> what she wants is the reassurance that you care about her. People going through a hard time want consolation, not explanation. And when we explain to them why they'll be better off, we don't do them any favors. We help them much more if we hug them and hold their hands, keep our mouths shut, and listen while they pour their grief out. How do we teach, as women, how do we teach our men to be nurturing, caring, and sensitive to themselves and to others? How do we teach men to be caring and nurturing? I'm not sure. I think one thing we can do is rent some videotapes of Alan Alda movies instead of Gary Cooper movies. <laughs> I think one thing we can do is just talk about it share the responsibilities, make sure that the division of labor is not nearly as extreme as it traditionally has been. My sense is, and this, this is an incredible discovery I made recently, when you give a man the opportunity to be emotionally open, much of the time he will be almost pathetically grateful. I paid a condolence call on a member of my congregation when his father died. And it was a fairly routine call. I sat with him, chatted for 10, 12 minutes, had some coffee with him, said all the right things. And then just when I was thinking, you know, I, I think this is long enough, I'm going to go home and catch the end of the ball game, he said something to me which caused me to say, it sounds like you and your father had some differences. And that was the last thing I said for the next 40 minutes. As he poured out this whole story of conflict and resentment and frustration and attempts to win his father's praise and pain because his father would never praise him and constantly being put down and feeling inadequate because he had not been the success that he thought his father expected him to be and all the things he wanted to say to his father and never could and all the pain that he could not have a good intimate close relationship with his father before his father died and he just poured this out for 40 minutes. When he finished, and I finally put my coffee cup down and got up to leave, he stood up and he hugged me, and he thanked me because he had never been able to talk to somebody about that. We have such impacted emotions. You know, what, what American society does to women is absolutely terrible, absolutely shameful and inexcusable. 
what it does to men is almost as bad. That we are emotionally impacted, that we are so reserved that we feel we have to live up to this macho image. I'll tell you something, I think a lot of men are scared, scared of letting their vulnerability show. They're afraid of appearing weak and vulnerable to their wives because they're afraid their wives will use it against them, will somehow, somehow hurt them when they take off the armor. There is so much suspicion and so much fear of mutual hurt in intimate relationships. What can a woman do? I, I won't pretend to say it's easy, but if you can create a kind of a non-threatening, non-intimidating atmosphere, an assurance of what you say will not be held against you, I think men are looking for the opportunity to be vulnerable. I think they're looking to nurture. It's a, it's a tremendous experience, and it's a very liberating experience, and I think men are looking for that sort of thing. We are burdened with a sense of being macho, and all the cardiovascular difficulties and all the emotional difficulties that go along with that. And we would be delighted to have our life partners come along and take 40 to 50% of that burden from our shoulders. In your book, you spoke, uh, the first book, the uh, one we all know the best, talked about children's reactions to abnormalities in other people. And I'd be interested to hear you comment a little more about that reality. Sure. Um, our son Aaron, who died almost exactly 10 years ago next week, was physically deformed by his progeria. He was a very strange looking child, a little bit like E.T. in the movie. Whenever we took him out in public, he would be the subject of stares and little children pointing. And we felt as his parents we had to be very protective because we knew how painful it was for Aaron. And we get very angry at children and angry at their parents for pulling the kids away when they pointed or something, and, or angry at them for not pulling the kids away. It was only with a little bit of distance and objectivity that I realized what's going on, and I think it works something like this. Children are very much afraid of the elderly, of the crippled, of the disfigured and the deformed. They're afraid of people who are outsized, very fat, very tall, very short and dwarfed. They're afraid because they're tr they have a tremendous sense of vulnerability about their own bodies. And for them to discover that little children can be hurt, burned, disfigured, dwarfed, bald, crippled, lose an arm, be blind, whatever it may be. For them to find out that people in general can be hurt that way scares them, raises their level of anxiety incredibly. A very perceptive psychologist once wrote, children have a morality of security. Good is anything which makes them feel safe. Bad is anything which makes them feel vulnerable. Seeing physically afflicted children and adults scares little children. Seeing the terribly elderly, the wizened, scares little children. And I think, idealistic as it may be, I think we expect too much when we, accept, when we expect little children to be saintly about this. Perhaps adults can see this in context, because we can handle the fears of injury and mortality that we feel when we see the crippled or the disfigured or the very old. But it's hard for children. I don't have a good answer for this. 
It hurts the person who is stared at, who is shied away from, but I think it's what little children are going to do. The most you can do is explain to children that this didn't happen to him because he was bad or naughty, and you don't have to be afraid that it will happen to you because it's not likely to happen to you. We don't know what happened to that man. Was he sick? Was he in an accident? Was he in the war? We don't know what happened to this woman. Was she born that way? Did she have surgery? But they're still very fine, lovely people, and you don't have to be afraid of them. And if we say it often enough, and if we really feel that way, so that we are expressing our authentic feelings and not just trying to remember the words that Rabbi Kushner said back at Westminster, then perhaps we will be able to convey that to our children as well. Thank you. Personal question. <laughs> Thank you for that. Perhaps this is subject for your next time with us, but what were the factors in your life that led you to become a rabbi, a teacher, a writer? Uh, do we ever know why we do the things we do? I give you conscious reasons, but I suspect that there's a whole unconscious series of motivations. Partly, I will confess very candidly that in a situation where there are 800 people sitting and listening and one person standing and talking, I like being the one who stands and talks. <laughs> Partly, I admired the rabbi of my youth inordinately. I thought he was a wonderful person, and I wanted to be like him if I could. And of course, I only saw the things he did publicly, and those were the things that I, I thought a rabbi did. And partly, I have a theory. I have a theory that men with strong fathers do as a hobby what their fathers did for a profession, or else do as a profession what their fathers did for a hobby. It's a way of following in your father's footsteps without directly competing with him because you don't want to imitate him and be not as good, and you don't want to imitate him and be better. So doing professionally what he did as a vocation is a good compromise. My father was a businessman who was very active in his local synagogue and in Jewish educational matters. And one of the ways I felt I could be like him, despite having absolutely no head for business, was to devote myself full-time to the things that he cared enough about to give his spare time to, and that is the religious, the spiritual, and the educational life. There are probably other reasons which would take years of psychoanalysis to try and uncover, and I can't believe that's what the, the questioner really wants from me. <laughs> Thank you. You talked about being human today and in your book. Being human and made in the image of God means being free to make choices instead of doing whatever our instincts would tell us to do. I would judge that your instinct after three days of conference here would have been to go home. Uh, we're glad that you made the choice to come and be with us this hour, Rabbi Kushner. Thank you.